Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. I don't know whether you've felt this, but some of the things we've done tonight are pretty weird, unusual. If you went into most houses in Australia tonight and asked, just sort of observe what they're doing, ask what they're up to, I suspect that not many of them have been singing together. You go to a pub. Even in pubs, people don't seem to sing together much. Catch a train or a bus, you see lots of people with the earbuds in, listening to music, but I've noticed that almost everyone tries not to sing along with the music they're listening to. Sometimes they start to mouth it and then they catch themselves and stop. But we've sung. We've raised our voices. If you went to a Buddhist temple, you'd find quiet meditation, but no singing, no songs of praise. Go to a Muslim mosque, same thing. You had lots of prostrations and washings and sermons, but no songs of praise to Allah. Singing, the sort of songs we've sung tonight, is unique, I think, to Christianity in every religion in the world. Why? Well, it's not hard to see why. Just think of some of the songs that we've sung. We sing songs because we've experienced something of the amazing love of God. His compassion for our plight as wayward human beings, as sinful, condemned humans. We've seen his action. He sent his own son to die for us. We've been lavished with his grace that would take people like us into his own family, call us his sons and daughters. But I must admit, when I come to church and we sing, if I have a friend with me who doesn't, hasn't experienced the grace of God, I actually feel a little bit awkward for them. Because I presume they don't want to join in. They can't really join in. Uh, I've experienced that grace of God, but they haven't. If you're not a Christian here tonight, I suspect you've felt that yourself. You've, you've heard us singing songs and you think you should join in because everybody else is, but how can I join in? How can I sing rejoice, rejoice, O church of God, rejoice? Because I'm not part of the church of God. I happened to come to church once, but that's not really me. How can my non-Christian friends ever sing the praises of God? Because they don't know his grace. It's not a cause for joy and celebration for them. I'm into it. I, I love it. But it's not for them, is it? And in that sense, this sort of praise to God is an exclusive activity. And that's how Psalm 98 kicks off. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 98 and we'll go through this. It begins, sing to the Lord a new song for he's done marvellous things that's the wavelength of it. God has done marvellous things. So just marvel out for a while. Get marvelled by it, because it's marvellous. 
Here, though, it's not for his creative genius, his engineering design of this universe. It's for his salvation. Second half of verse 1, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. That's the idea of saying when God does something, he does it with grunt. It, It really achieves something. His right arm is powerful. It does something. And salvation here has the sense of victory. God saves not by sort of sneaking in the back door undercover and spiriting people away unnoticed, because that just leaves us still in fear, doesn't it? No, God has saved by victory, by crushing the enemy. So we're really free. That's his right arm, powerfully in action. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation and revealed his righteousness to the nations. It's public and unmistakable. Whether you like it or don't like it, it's happened. It's out there. It's part of the public record, part of history. Uh, And he celebrates in in verse 3 the fact that God has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. There are two words that echo through the whole Bible. Love has this incredible sense of surprising mercy. When people don't deserve it, when they anti-deserve it, yet God responds in a way that's just totally bizarre. I don't know whether you saw some of the videos in this last week of the responses of some of the Coptic Christians in Egypt to the bombs that went off on Palm Sunday, killing people in their churches. Uh, I saw a video this afternoon of uh, uh, the wife of one of the men who was killed with those bombings. And she said, we forgive those who do this. And the, uh, the, the TV host who was uh, showing the, that video clip was blown away by it. He said, these Christians are made of steel. I've never seen anything like this. That's love displayed by God's people because it reflects what God is like. Surprising mercy and faithfulness. Solidarity. When God says something, he delivers, he comes through. And those are two critical, brilliant things about the true and living God, his love and his faithfulness. They sum up what he's like towards us. And this psalm celebrates that. Now, it doesn't specify any particular events that the psalmist has in mind. But at one point in in history, maybe many points, God has remembered his love and faithfulness. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It certainly fits an, an event like the Exodus where God rescued his people out of the slavery they were in to the Egyptians, the superpower of the day. And yet God got them out and destroyed the power of Egypt in the process. He showed his love and faithfulness to his promises and to his people Israel. It would apply to the time of Joshua, when Joshua led the people into the promised land, or the times of the judges, Samson and and those other judges, or when God rescued uh, Jerusalem from the Assyrians. The Assyrian army had besieged Jerusalem, Everything else had been demolished by the Assyrians under Sennacherib and it looked like Jerusalem was just going to be squashed like a, a grape in the, between the fingers. And then something remarkable happened. Rumours of things going wrong back home reached Sennacherib and he just packed up and went home. Jerusalem was saved as God promised it would be. I think the psalm is deliberately vague because it applies to all those occasions and many others as well. And today, if we're Christians, we know it especially applies to the event that, was, that came after this psalm was written. Jesus. Jesus who came and saved us powerfully. Last weekend at Easter, I don't know whether it happened for you, but I had the chance to reflect again on the reality 
the historical truth, the solid events that Jesus died for us and rose again, victorious over death. Events full of grace and truth. So I can ask you, has has that hit you? Have you realised just how marvellous these things that God has done really are? I'm not saying do you feel exuberant like this all the time, but just occasionally do you feel that? Occasionally do you feel like I, I just can't help but sing of what God has done? And so verse 1 says, sing a new song to the Lord. Who? Who's supposed to be singing this? Well, verse 3, it's our God. The world has seen the salvation of our God. This is Christians singing it, the saved, singing a new song. And it sort of happens, doesn't it? If you notice that, Christians just keep writing new songs. Because we can't help but want to express our joy, our gratitude, our, our love for the God who's done this. Not just because we want more contemporary songs, it's just the overflow of joy, isn't it? Music, singing is, well, you sort of can't help it when that's how you feel. And up to the end of verse 3, this psalm is pretty standard fare. Brilliant, encouraging, terrific, but standard. But in verse 4, it departs from the usual. We get this deviation. Verse 4 begins, shout for joy to the Lord, not the saved, but all people, all the earth, everyone on earth. It's no longer exclusive. It's Christians saying to the whole world, come on, join us. Egyptians uh, who enslaved Israel, you join us in singing to God, songs of joy and praise. Even my non-believing friends, my atheist friends, my LGBT friends, my blaspheming friends, my Buddhist and Muslim friends, you come and join us. Come and go for it. And and it sort of goes over the top, burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horns. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Well, we didn't have harps and ram's horns, but I don't know, what's that? Electric guitars and drums and, and trumpets and it's... Create a band and really go for it. Just go over the top to Yahweh the King, to Yahweh our God, the God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be as loud and exuberant as you can possibly get. Now, if you thought that that was over the top, wait till you get to verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. This is wider still, isn't it? Even the oceans, the salmon and the sharks, the krill. Come on, join the echo. Jellyfish, you've got to shout the chorus out. And the land creatures as well, the lions and kangaroos, the possums, the sheep, the cockroaches even. Throw your hats in the air. Come on, be part of this exuberant joy. This songs of praise, rivers even. Non-animate things, clap your hands. Mountains, become a mighty choir. There isn't to be a quiet corner, an unmoved creature, a silent mouth anywhere in the whole world. Everyone, everything, join together in praising Yahweh, the God of Israel. But what's the reason for such exuberant celebration? What could unite the whole world to sing in unison? Is it the nice weather we've been having? Is it that our sporting team's lost again tonight? 
Is it God's grace to us in Jesus? Well, that would be the most obvious reason, wouldn't it? But it's not the psalmist's reason. Come with me to verse 9. This is the sting in the tail. Let them sing before the Lord. Let the rivers clap, the mountains sing. Sing before the Lord because he comes to judge the world. Is that a surprise to you? The whole world sing for joy because he comes to judge the world. Has the psalmist lost his or her marbles? Because judgment is the part of Christianity most of us feel a bit awkward about. As a Christian, I often I, I have opportunities to talk to people who are unbelievers, atheists or others, uh, uh, about Jesus. And often I'll mention judgment because it's the only way to make sense of Jesus, but I'll go past it as quick as I can because I, I don't want to major on that. I don't want them to think about it too much sometimes. And it's the reason many non-Christians give me for not wanting to be a Christian. You believe in a God who judges people. How could you believe in a nice God if you think that he judges people? And so we tend to be reluctant to broadcast it. We rush past it to get to the positive stuff about Jesus. But notice this isn't the psalmist saying, come on brothers and sisters, we know Jesus, we know that God is coming to judge, but it's all right, we'll be okay. Too bad for the rest though. But this is saying to the rest... God is coming to judge, so let's party, join the celebrations. And then the psalm just stops. It describes a little bit the judgment. He will come to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity and full stop. It finishes there. No apology, no explanation, just leaves it ringing in our ears. Everyone, anyone. In fact, the whole universe, the whole creation Come and join us in praising God because he's coming to judge. How do we make sense of it? What is this about? Well, I think in our culture, there are two taboos, things we're not allowed to talk about. One is death and the other, I think, is judgment. So we're going to explore the J word a little bit tonight. Try and make some sense of the psalmist's exuberance that God is coming to judge. The first thing to say is that the Bible's picture of judgment is much richer than the one we often have in our heads. I don't know what you have in your heads when you think of the judgment of God. Some of you might have in your minds that picture in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats, all appearing before everyone in the world, coming before the Son of Man and being sort of drafted like sheep or goats, some that way, some that way, as a personal destiny thing. Your individual destiny is determined on the day of judgment. Now, that is true, but it's a very small part of what is going to happen on judgment day. The Bible's picture is much bigger. Judgment is about justice. Justice is about putting things right. One aspect of that is punishing evil, but there's more to it than that. It'll be a day of exposure. Everything brought out into the open. People's motives, the causes and effects that so often we only guess at now. It'll be a day of vindication where those in the right are shown to be in the right and vice versa. It'll be a day of putting everything right forever. Now, that's a very difficult thing to even comprehend how it might happen. At the moment, we're in the middle of court cases to do with the murder 
of Corinne Rainey. Some of you may be aware of what's going on. Her husband was charged with her murder. Uh, he was found not guilty. He's now taking the, um, the police uh, uh, to court to try and get some compensation for the loss of his name, his reputation. Now, I don't know how to unravel that. I, I don't know whether he did it or didn't do it. I presume you don't know either. It seems like our courts don't really know. Many things are, are hidden in secret, aren't they? God's judgment will bring that out into the open. Everyone will finally know what happened, how it happened, and God will put it right. I remember hearing a story about a pharmacist who ran a pharmacy um, in Bayswater. And in a period of six months, he was held up three times by armed robbers after money and after drugs. And it just messed with his mind so much that he was forced to quit his job as a pharmacist. Um, uh, it was just a, a psychological wreck from that, those experiences coming again and again. And then when that happened to him, his marriage fell apart and some of his kids got into real trouble. The ripples just went out and out and out. Now, how does justice come to a situation like that? It's, it's really hard to know. It's not just about punishing the crooks, but, but somehow putting lives back together properly. I don't know how God is going to do it, but that's part of the Bible's picture of judgment. Evil spoils things so much, but God will put it back together. Judging in the Bible is not just sitting in court making decisions about issues brought before it. In the Old Testament, judges ruled over Israel. They actually worked out what was happening. They were leaders because they were bringing the good rule of God to God's people. A whole new state of affairs then is what is promised with the judgment of God. Secondly, we need to recognise who judges. In the psalm, it's Yahweh, the king of the universe with power and authority to enforce his judgments. He's not a weakling who's forced to negotiate and compromise with evil. If you know anything about justice, you'll know how difficult that is. In Syria at the moment, I don't know how much you've followed of it, but it's just a complete political and military mess, isn't it? There's the government of Assad, there's all sorts of rebel groups, there's IS, which claims to be one of the rebel groups but is hated by all the rebel groups. In fact, they all hate each other. Everyone's just fighting one another. Now, even if you could sort out who was right and who was wrong, what could you do about it? The US thinks they've got some ideas, they're bombing people, we're joining in with them, but our bombing hasn't achieved anything much, hasn't really changed the situation, doesn't promise to very soon. See, what you need in order to sort out a situation is real power. Think about southern Sudan. It's a, in a mess almost as big as Syria. It's been going on for longer. Now, the one who will judge can enforce his justice. And that's what is needed. Absolutely needed. But we actually know more than the psalmist did. Because we know that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to his Son. Let me read from John 5. Uh, he says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that is to Jesus, that all may honour the Son. Father has entrusted the judgment of the whole universe, that day of judgment, to Jesus. And I reckon there's no one better in whose hands to put judgment. Because he knows our lives from the inside out. He's not aloof, he's not out of touch. He knows it like we do. 
He knows what it's like to suffer injustice. Remember when Jesus was being crucified, he had all the power at his disposal to crush his enemies. But he didn't do it, did he? He responded with love and forgiveness to those who tortured and crucified him. Now, someone who responds like that is someone you can trust with that sort of authority. He's not going to abuse it. There's going to be no personal vendettas. He's not going to have his own separate agenda to get his own back. We know that from the way he responded in 33 AD. And thirdly, judgment, we're told in the psalm, is with righteousness and equity. In Australia, we live in a very privileged situation where most of what happens in our courts seems to be justice of some sort. Often it's in ignorance, but it's not corrupt like most of what passes for justice in the majority of the world. In most of the world, you can buy the decision of the court just with money. In most of the world, it's very hard to get a fair price for your goods. Slave labour is used by the multinationals. In most of the world, getting the truth about what's happened, whether it's tobacco or asbestos or climate change or genetically modified foods or whatever it might be, is very hard to get. And it's not that easy here even though we don't have that level of corruption. But Jesus knows the real story, even the motives of the heart. He'll get it right. I don't know what happened with Corinne Rainey. Someday, when Jesus returns, I, I will know. It'll all become clear, and Jesus will judge righteously and with equity. See what the psalmist's saying? There is coming a day of justice. God has promised He's entrusted it to Jesus. It's going to be done. And when it's done, it'll be done brilliantly. So rejoice. But you might be sitting there thinking, Tim, I I get that it might be done well, but I, I can't rejoice in it. Judgment seems so harsh. It seems like there's going to be so much negative about it. What's so good about God coming to judge? Well, let me offer a couple of ideas on this. The first is to suggest to you that justice is what most people are crying out for much of the time. Now, I know Reader's Digest is not the uh, epitome of empirical research, but Reader's Digest claims that the most common phrase on the lips of teenagers is what, do you reckon? It's not fair. That's right. It's not fair. It's not fair that they sliced the cake and I didn't get my share of it. It's not fair that my siblings were allowed to go out and party before I was allowed to go out. It's not fair that they gave an extension on the assignment after I'd handed it in on time. It's it's not fair. Everything comes down to it's not fair so often. Whether it's assessments, whether it's the way friends treat us, whether it's sporting games, whether it's who watches what programs on TV in our family, that's what comes up so often. Now, sometimes it's fairly trivial, isn't it? But even then you hear the exasperation in the voice, don't you? It's it's not fair. But when you think about what's happened in Egypt, Christians being bombed to scare them, to kill them, it's not just I want to say it's not fair, I want to say it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. And every time I say it's wrong, every time I, I cry, it's not fair, what am I doing? I'm saying I'm longing for someone, some time, to put things right. I'm asking for justice. 
And it's the cry of every heart, isn't it? We want justice somewhere, somehow, sometime. Well, let me put it another way. What if there was no day of judgment? What if God, if there is a God, was never going to do anything about it? At first it seems attractive, I think. We're free then, there's no pressure. Don't need to feel guilty, there's no negative consequences for how I've lived. But it doesn't take much reflection to see what a disaster it would be. It means firstly, living with the depressing prospect that the world would just go on and on and evil will keep mounting up to the sky and nothing will ever happen about it. What people have done in Syria, there'll never be any recompense. They'll, they'll die. Nothing will ever happen to them. They'll go to the grave, still having enjoyed shooting, maiming, raping, killing people. Secondly, it means there's nothing to restrain human evil and cruelty, not, not ultimately anyway. If there's no fear of God, is not, if God is not going to judge, then we really are in a dog-eat-dog world, aren't we? And that's a very frightening place to be, unless you happen to have the biggest gun for a little while. A very frightening place to be. And it means our lives ultimately become meaningless. Because it doesn't matter whether you decide to help someone or harm them, to care for them or kill them. You'll just die and rot in the ground and it won't make any difference in the long run. Unless there's some assessment of our lives, our lives are meaningless. I remember chatting to a student who said, I I wish my lecturer cared about us. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've handed in an assignment three months ago and I still haven't got it back. I said, well, why do you, aren't you afraid you might get a bad mark? He said, well, maybe, but I want to know. I've put the work in, I've handed my assignment in to not mark is, is wrong. That is, to not mark means my work was meaningless. If God never marks us, if we're never held to account, if my, the decisions I make make no difference, then my life does become meaningless. And so the psalmist encourages to think that it's a very good thing that God will come to judge. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the Areopagus, which I guess the closest equivalent to that is UWA, the premier university uh, in Australia. And he's speaking uh, to, the, to the philosophers. And what he says to them at the end of his little talk, he, he gets interrupted, so I'm not quite sure where we've gone, but he says this, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, when Paul said that, he didn't say it apologetically. He didn't say, well, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed about this, I prefer not to say it, but I have to tell you. No, he says it as if it's a good and positive thing, something you should be glad to hear. Such a good thing. Such a marvellous action of God that it calls on everyone to sing with joy, even the pagans and the atheists, who had no hope of any righteous judgment. He says to them, one day there will be a judgment, so come and join the celebrations. Even uh, the psalm calls on nature to join the celebrations. because Nature itself has been groaning under the weight of human sin, waiting for its liberty. It's unfair that creation groans. It is groaning, though, waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for the judgment. So kangaroos and dolphins join in. And I want to invite you to join in to add our voice to the whole creation, to sing with joy 
because the judgment of God is coming. Now, three situations I think this might make a difference in. There are many more as well, but let me suggest three. One is when we suffer injustice. Because it happens quite often in life, doesn't it? Uh, chatting to a student who was doing chemistry here at UWA, and they, they told me how at each of the chem labs they'd been in that semester, one of the other students in their chem lab had sabotaged their experiment. So it never worked. You know, they'd add a bit of chemical when they were going somewhere else. They'd spill something. Every experiment got wrecked up and they failed that unit. What do you say to someone in that situation? Get mad? Get even? Now, the psalmist says, God will come to judge. God will vindicate you. And it's not wrong to look forward to that. It's part of wanting justice, of our search our need for justice. And throughout the Bible, God's people are encouraged to patiently trust God in the face of oppression and injustice. The conviction is that if you believe in that, you won't lash out and you won't get eaten up with your own bitterness about it. Unless you're confident that God will bring justice, I think it's impossible not to lash out. But if you are confident, you can bear up patiently waiting for God to sort it all out. Secondly, If you think about the issues of social justice, we know from the Bible, in this passage included, that God is a righteous God. Justice is very close to his heart. And therefore it should be to ours as well. And therefore there should be outrage at the exploitation and abuse of power we see around us. There should be tears with those who suffer injustice and the effects of it. The context of the psalm is the injustice of the whole world. But what are we to do about it? Well, Christians have struggled through the history of Christianity what to do about the injustices we see around us. Should we have compassion for the victims? Yes, certainly. Should we take action to alleviate their suffering? Yes, certainly. But should we take action to overturn unjust structures? Should we take political action, armed action, agitation? Well, that's what I'm not so sure about. I say this tentatively, but the perspective of the psalm is rejoice that God will come to judge. That is where the energy generated by injustice is directed. And I think I see the same thing in the New Testament. There's no explicit encouragement to give our life to challenging and changing the power structures of our world. Instead, the encouragement is to pray for the kingdom to come, to pray for the justice of God, because it will be done well. And that perspective of the psalm is so often missing amongst those urging us to take action. Thirdly, inclusive praise. Now, maybe you, like me, feel reluctant to invite my non-believing friends to praise God for his salvation. Yet, I'd love them to join me when they've come to believe and embrace that salvation, but at the moment, they, they haven't. And I'm reluctant to ask them to join him, but I can ask them to join me in praising God for his judgment. It's got me thinking about a few things. The next time I hear someone saying, that's not right, it's unfair, they shouldn't get away with it, well, maybe I could say to them, I'm so glad Jesus won't let them get away with it. When someone says to you, I I deserve better, I I want justice, it stinks, it's not fair. I guess you could respond by saying, isn't it terrific that Jesus is coming to judge? Don't you agree? Why don't you join me in shouting for joy that Jesus will judge? Impossible to imagine? Maybe. 
But that's where the psalm directs us. That's where God encourages us. Now, if I respond that way, it may raise further questions like, what will happen to me when God's judgment comes? Well, personally, I wouldn't mind that question being raised. What about you?